All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fucking ears? What's going on? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome. I want a, a special shout out because occasionally, you know, I say hello to people on their bikes or in their cubicles or on the treadmill or at the gym or cleaning up or painting or perhaps you're uh, you're uh, finishing that sculpture or maybe maybe you're 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 just uh, putting the uh, the final touches on that bunker, stocking up those shelves with canned goods and jerky. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's my audience, but it's possible. But somebody said, how about those of us who are working in the lab? Well, how are you? Welcome to the show. Those of you who are busy at work in the lab, doing things with microscopes or vials. I I see smoking blue liquid in test tubes, perhaps dissecting things, maybe just moving highly dangerous things from one place to another wearing a suit of some kind welcome to you i'm glad you have headsets in that hazmat suit welcome welcome military people yesterday was veterans day i uh, got a little few emails some tweets from uh from uh people in the military saying thank you well thank you a lot of nice feedback for the lauren michaels episode some of you are saying, "Well, what do you what what happens now, man? You you got Obama, you got Keith, you got Lauren Michaels in in one year. What happens now, man? Well, I'll tell you what happens. I keep doing the show. I've got Elvis Costello on the show today. There's a lot of people that I admire and respect, and I'm curious about their work, who they are. I don't feel like I'm running out of people, so we keep doing the show. Okay? Did I mention Elvis Costello? I did. Elvis Costello." So anyways, a little squirrely. I'll be honest with you. Driving around my car and I'm feeling relaxed because I enjoy driving. But uh, okay, I'm going to cop to it. I'm thinking like maybe a little weed would be nice. How about a little weed? I used to smoke weed every morning. I used to carry around a little one here wooden pipe back before vapes and uh, prescribed pot. I used to have a little wooden box with a sliding top and a little wooden pipe that only fit one hit or so in there, and I'd tuck into phone booths. That's the last time I smoked weed is where you could still walk down the street and tuck into phone booths to load up your little one-hit pipe and do a, 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 little, a little pull, a little hit. So I'm driving around thinking, maybe a little weed, and when you're a sober person, you're like, shit, man, I shouldn't be thinking about weed. Where's that coming from? I better get to a secret society get-together and uh, get straight with my my program. But I couldn't figure it out, man. I was feeling pretty good, yet I'm still thinking about smoking weed. And then I put it together. This is what happened. I know why I wanted to smoke some weed. I know what reawakened that urge in my mind and in my heart, because, you know, weed's pretty good. So here's what happened. I got a new car, right? I got that Camry, the hybrid Camry. Comes with Sirius Radio, which was on trial basis. Then my buddy Dean Del Rey goes, oh, you listen to the Grateful Dead channel? Now, I don't know, some of you know this about me, but I got a deadhead in me. I wear patchouli to this day. 
not because of the Grateful Dead, but because a witchy woman that I dated many years ago turned me on to the patchouli, and I've worn it ever since. Been wearing patchouli about 20 years, so it's not necessarily associated with the hippie thing. But I've been listening to the goddamn Grateful Dead channel on Sirius Radio almost nonstop every time I'm in the car. So, of course, I want to smoke weed. Wow. I had no idea. It wasn't even a, it wasn't an immediate trigger. It took about two weeks of listening to the same 14 songs in many different live versions over many different eras for me to start getting squirrely around the weed. I blame Sirius. I blame the Grateful Dead station for my relapsey driven mind around the weed i got a handle on it though i do like listening to the grateful dead sometimes and i'm going to admit that that's a secret between uh between us and i was reading uh, elvis costello's book he enjoys the grateful dead too i don't think i i wish i would have got more time with him but it was tight on the time i was tight on the time with that one i got another thing i want to tell you but i'm a little i'm nervous about talking about it because uh it's it what you asked for it and I'll tell you about it. Let me catch you up. Let me catch you up on some stuff. There's been a few people that have been thinking like, well, Marin's not as candid as he used to be, or he's not talking about his life, or he's gotten too big. I don't know what you think I'm doing. I don't know what life you think I have. You know, I wake up, I've been interviewing people a lot, uh, and then I go right or I go, uh, I go, I go to Whole Foods and I get aggravated. I go to Trader Joe's and I get aggravated. Why? Maybe you're wondering why I'm still aggravated. I don't fucking know, man. Things are good, but are they great? Yeah, they're pretty great. Is it a day to day struggle for me to uh, to keep my shit together mentally and emotionally? Yes. Am I still a little emotionally fucked up? Yes, I am. Is that what you want to hear? Will this make you feel better? Am I am I seething with anger for no reason and no place to put it a lot of times? Would meditation help that? Maybe. I haven't tried it yet. Have not tried it yet. Why am I holding out? Good question. Maybe because I'm attached to my discomfort. Is that what you want to hear? But also, like, I know there's some things going on with me because, okay, I'll be honest with you. I've been a little squirrely doing a lot of sets at the comedy store. Uh, because that's what I do. I'm a stand-up comic, and um, I, I lost my shit. Not on stage. I lost my shit. It's been a long time since I lost my shit. It's been a long time since I felt the heat of rage gurgle up from my stomach, up through my chest, into my arms, and my eyes just go fucking red with fire intensity, and I can't, I feel my whole body gets enveloped in something that needs resolution. What happened was, a guy I know, hangs around the store, comic, haven't seen him in a while, he was around a lot, I don't need to mention names, because I don't want to. But I hadn't seen him, and you know, he was walk- I was walking out of the original room into the back hallway, he walked by me, I go, hey, what's up? And he just ices me, puts his hand up, he goes, eh. And I'm like, what? And he just kind of walks by, I'm like, what's the matter, man? He goes, eh. And, and, and I'm just like, I'm like, what the fuck? And I just walked up to him. I said, what is your fucking problem? What's going on? He's like, eh. And I'm like, what are you fucking doing? He's like, eh. And I'm like, what the fuck is your problem, man? He's like, eh. And I go, I don't get what you're doing. I don't get it. You got a problem? Let's talk about it. He goes, no, why don't you just, why don't you just go back up the hall? I didn't ask to talk to you. I said, don't you fucking tell me where to walk or what to do, bitch. 
I said that in a louder tone. So now let me set the scene with you. There are other comics in the hallway and there was a woman, this woman, Molly, an agent from, uh, I don't know, ICM, who I talked to earlier in a very nice, <laughs> charming tone. And she thought we were just kidding until she realized, oh no, Marin's fucking losing it. And I don't even know her. So she scrambles off. And he says, why don't you scroll back through your Twitter feed and find out? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? And he says, you couldn't, you couldn't just leave it. You couldn't just leave it. You had to show that you had more power than me. You just said, eh. And I'm like, I do not know what the fuck you're talking about. I don't know. I didn't know it was you or whatever. And I'm just, and I'm screaming. He's like, do you think this looks good? You yelling at a young comic. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. What the fuck is your problem? Why are you treat me like a fucking asshole? And he goes to walk off. And I said, um, let me see if I can be honest with you because uh, some of you feel like uh, you're not getting honesty from me. As he walked off, leaving me in a rage with no resolution, I said, you're a fucking cunt and you're not funny. And I walked back down the hall and, uh, and everyone in the hallway was like, uh, don't, don't look in his eyes. Like, oh shit, mommy and daddy just lost it. Just don't look in his, you know, like, and I felt the rage kind of easing and and then it sort of dissipated. But like I felt bad because I didn't want to lose my shit. But I also thought I was being, you know, provoked. And he was treating me like an asshole. And I lost my shit. And I had no recollection of what the hell he was talking about. But I felt shitty because I don't want to lose my shit like that. Then I go back to talk to, like I was going back into the original room to do my set. And I see that woman molly and i'm like hey what's going on yeah that got a little out of hand and she's looking at me like i don't know you and you're scary and i'm like oh my god i know that face i've seen that face but you here's the fucked up thing about rage is that you're in it and there's people around and what does that look like how fucking like crazy and scary is that shit and i felt fucking embarrassed because like you know now i'm a crazy man it was just embarrassing and that, you know, and that's what happens when you build it up. You don't meditate, you drink too much coffee, you hold your feelings in, whatever the fuck it is. It happened. I felt bad about it. And then I, you know, I did my set and I said, look, man, you know, I'm sorry. I don't remember what you're talking about. He goes, okay, I, I believe you. And you know, I'm sorry too. It got out of hand. I'm like, I'm sorry. All right. I walked away. It was like a very reluctant, but genuine apology. And then I went back home and I looked on my Twitter feed and, you know, somebody had said, you know, something he, he was added in this request. Someone asked me to have him on the show and I said, eh, like I did know what, what I was doing and I was being a dick, but I didn't really think it would like cause that much trouble. I, sh I should just get off Twitter altogether. Because like I'm I'm no different. I'm the same way. If somebody says something dismissive or shitty to me, you know, I, I get fucking worked up and you know, this guy knows me and I know him and I said a shitty thing and I felt shitty about it and he you know, he was right. But nonetheless, there's a little personal story about Mark losing his shit uh in um <laughs> in this great and prosperous time where everything should be going his way. Busy, drained Working hard, overwhelmed, shit builds up, I lose my mind on some dude. We made up, but it's a little clouded by the fact that I was a dick. And uh, I guess I'm just wanting to tell you guys I'm still capable of that. <laughs> and I'm sorry. So, 
That being said, we have Elvis Costello on the show today. And uh, I read a little bit of his new book, which is uh, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. It's out now. It's great. And I was excited to talk to him, but nervous because when I got to talk to people that have done a lot of work, you know, it's like, how are we going to get it in? Well, he was running a little late and he got here and we we had literally an hour. He got here. He came with a guy I know, uh, Eddie Gordetsky, comedy writer, and uh, another guy. And they come in. And I'm like, you need water, you need tea. You know, I always have tea on hand for my British friends. And then he sees my espresso machine and, sitting on the uh, on the counter. He goes, what's that? And I go, well, I can make you an espresso. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I make him a double shot of espresso, which, eat, which eats into the hour. He shoots it back like a goddamn shot of Jameson's. And we come out here and he just, right out of the gate, we're fucking going. We're, we're up and running, man. So this is a, a very packed... An engaged hour with the maestro that is uh, that is Elvis Costello, and I would like to mention that uh, you know we t- I talked with Elvis. This actually took place a couple weeks ago, and we talked about blues legend, uh, New Orleans artist uh, Alan Toussaint, uh, who passed away this week. Uh, R.I.P. And uh, I thought I should mention that because it it had not happened uh, when I talked to Elvis. So this is my conversation uh, with Elvis Costello. <laughs> Well, what do you think? Well, Peter Green plays big in your childhood, right? Yeah, but but you know, I I, I didn't I didn't even register him until uh, until he was in Fleetwood Mac. I didn't know anything about. I'm too yeah, a little right. bit a little bit too young. Yeah, for, for the blues boom. You right. Know? Yeah. I, yeah. I was a kid in where we lived was you know across the bridge from the station hotel. Right. We lived just a, a 150 yards from the Thames and. Uh, it was all happening around there. Right. You know, if I'd just been like a teenager, I would have had a ball because it was, you know, over the bridge was the station hotel where the stone started. Sure. There was a dirty old van that used to be parked in the next street. Yeah. That, that I never did find out because you'd never see them in the hours <laughs> right. of daylight. But they said it was the Yardbirds or it just could have been their road crew. Right. You know? But as kids, we said the Yardbirds live in the next street. And, you know, this van would, would have I love Jeff or I love Eric. I don't know whether Painted on there? Written in the dust, yeah, you yeah, know, written yeah, in the yeah. dust or a bit of lipstick or something, and and because they were just breaking out of blues into being a pop group, you know? yeah, yeah. And there was Eel Pie Island that's just round the bend in the river, yeah. So this is a hotbed of you know so, sort of blues into psychedelic music going on all around me, and I'm just you know I was t- ten and sixty four. So you're just you starting know. to see the hippies going and the the long hair is going like that looks interesting. But yeah, but <laughs> I know I was even like this is even earlier. I mean, it's uh-huh. like sixty five, sixty six. Oh, so so there. people were only just getting long hair. Right, right. And sort of long hair like the Rolling Stones, not long hair like you know Woodstock. You know. It's well, it's like, sort of interesting though because I read I've read about uh, hundred and seventy pages. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> you're in. You're not cutting back. Now, and and I think it's great unless something happens at page two hundred and it just falls to shit. I think it's no, a great book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I, I I figured I'd hook him in early and get him in. And as you can tell, I I had no intention of going. I was born. I did this. My drug hell. My conversion. No, you go back and forth. It's interesting. Yeah, because it was. I, I didn't. Because you can read the other stuff. All the. All yeah. The blo- all the. You know, I wrote sixty thousand words of of liner notes. Yeah. Of so liner that, notes. Of liner notes. Yeah. <laughs> for various reissues. Is that because another it's book? Like, it's like episodic. Yeah. Kind of telling of how we made the record. So this is more like how how I heard music the way I did because I, I traced it back 
to to the seeing my dad when I was a little lad. Sure, well, I was well. I think what was interesting is you're saying that you missed that that first wave, the British blues boom, yeah. but because you grew up when you grew up, you sort of have access to your father's music yeah. and then you know if you want to go back to the booze you can but the music that was happening I was very surprised to see you know what was influencing you well it was you know it's my, my parents met in a record shop I mean that's yeah. you know if you're if your you're, mom worked you're, there yeah she she but this I'm talking about like 19 you know 49 mm -hmm. 50 my mother worked in a record shop from 1943 she she, she left school at 14 that's yeah. the first job she got it's all the only job she knew yeah and of course you had to learn the catalog inside out then you had to be able to recommend which is the version of this song you know there's five was it classical of it. or jazz no or no you know popular stuck. songs of yeah, the day yeah. and they and they did they did have to learn you know even a shop girl had to know they used to send her up to the philharmonic hall and you had to learn about classical music and so she knew you it. Know, she knew that and i had to and she just had an interest in dance band music which was the pop music of the day you know through the late 40s and jazz and my dad was among the musicians coming in trying to play this crazy new music out of America, which was bebop. Right. Well, you know, my dad, you know, has to his name that he was Birkenhead. That's the little town opposite Liverpool. Birkenhead's leading and probably only bebop trumpet player. You know, there wasn't like a big jazz scene. <laughs> but you, you know, grew up with a, a musician father. Yeah. And you knew the, uh, oh, as you got older, you knew the pitfalls of that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and, and yeah. uh, but do you find that, have you somehow broken the mold? Do you feel like... Uh, well, not in certain ways, no. <laughs> I mean, well, no, my dad, my, you know, my dad was, um, he, he quickly found like a lot of jazz musicians that he could make. He happened to have a talent to be able to sing. Yeah. So, you know, he wasn't, he came, He tried to go to London. Yeah. You know, uh, with a cat under his arm like Dick Whittington, you know. Right. And, uh, and my mother got a job. Actually, my mother did better than my dad. My mother got a, a, a job in Selfridge's department store, big, you know, yeah. really fancy department store. Yeah. And sold records there. We, mom and dad sort of struggled to get into jazz. So he took a job with a dance band, just playing in the section. Then oh, so that's how he yeah. ended up with, what was the name of that guy? Joe Loss Orchestra. Joe, yeah, yeah. yeah, And then it, they discovered he could sing, and then they pushed him forward. here, give you a couple of numbers as a vocalist. And next thing, he was appearing on the you know annual polls of vocalists, and he got headhunted by the one of the top bands of the day. And they were a band like based on you know Glenn Miller. They're, that's the kind of. But music did they he ever feel like a, a regret that he didn't pursue the, well, the I, I more? Talked, I talked about it with him when he was a lot older, you know, and because uh, he knew all the names of all these great jazz musicians, yeah. the English ones, sure. some of whom became world famous, and uh, you know they were his sort of pals when he first came to London. But you know he had a great, he had a really great career as a as a singer on the radio. He didn't record very much, so I don't have a lot of examples of him singing. He, he 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 sang on the radio every week, and the way radio was set up in England then was very different than America. You know, yeah. we didn't have twelve, you know, twelve or twenty-four hours of pop, continuous pop radio at lots of different stations with different call signs. We just had the BBC, right? And they had all these funny regulations, funny agreements that had been made between the musicians' union and the performing. They could only play five hours of music a day. That's all recorded because they had music. live programming. Because the rest of it had to be live to keep the musicians in work. Right. Of which, of course, my dad benefited from that. And so the BBC had a lot of BBC orchestra, BBC this, BBC that. But they didn't and record then, it. And, and no, it went out live, and right. then it was just gone. Yeah, yeah. So they were sort of like acted like a filter. Right. And and of course, the groups, you know, of the day, the the recording artists were also. Blind to go onto those shows and play live performances of the hits, how they got exposure, you know? right? Yeah. So when I was a you know young lad and I'd be off school, I'd go yeah. with my dad. Yeah. And that was the thrill, you know, because I, I thought I was going, you know, it's like take your sure. kid today. Yeah, yeah. Take your kid to work day. Um, and you were in show business. It was show business. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd been to the dance hall with them on a Saturday right. and seen how it worked. Then to get to go to the broadcast, the the real 
the real hook for me to go there, as much as I like to see my dad work, yeah. was that um, there'd be a you know there'd be a group of the day on who were more the music that I actually wanted to listen to. You know, who would you it, see? Mersey Beats, the Hollies. You know, the, oh, you saw the Hollies. Yeah, I mean, I saw the Hollies come in. I mean, uh, you know, the the guys who were in the band with my dad was about thirty seven then. Sure, but you know, it's all timey in a way. Some of the some of the men in the band were maybe as much as fifty. Yeah, yeah. But they all seemed like you know old when you're ten. Sure, yeah, you can't yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. How yeah. And then suddenly these <clears throat> scruffy guys come in carrying their own equipment, and and I've really I've written in the book like I really remember Tony Hicks, the guitar player. He just had a sweater on. He didn't have a jacket on with a hole in the elbow. Yeah. I don't know why it's stuck in my head all these years because I just went, oh, he's like a kid like me. <laughs> you know, and it was like a thing right. where just yeah, the light yeah, went yeah. on. It could be, I could be like that, you know, because I think he was only 18. Did, so, how much, when you were writing the book, how much did you learn about yourself in the process of digging out? Like, because like, for me to see that, you know, that you were compulsively playing Neil Young music at uh, the beginning... I mean, did, is that something you've always carried with you and talked about, or did you realize things about yourself? The fact that you were excited to see Little Feet, I, I found yeah. not jarring, but just sort of like, really, Elvis? Well, it's not stuff? really what they, people, you know, people get you a little, if they just know you a little bit, right. then they just know that one type of music you play. They don't ever think about what other music you might Well, no, know I can see like, it. You know? I mean, I can yeah. see, like, it seems to me that, you know, you mentioned Joni Mitchell, Crosby, yeah. Stills, and Nash, Neil Young, Little Feet, and then uh, you, you mentioned some country music. I mean, it all, it all seems to inform what you ended up doing your entire life van morrison it's just the way you hear it i just think some of it some of the music i that was in the house when i was just a little kid that's yeah. playing your parents are choosing the that's why i never heard rock and roll because my parents were tuned into they were tuned into frank sinatra and bebop but they know. didn't strike me as conservative they people. weren't conservative it just wasn't interesting it was, to them. That they, was they, they didn't think it was bad music right this was the other music they were more concerned and then my dad was obliged to learn whatever was in the hip parade whether sure. it was you know, it's not unusual by Tom Jones or, you know, like a Rolling Stone. I mean, really, I know it's hard to imagine that they process these songs through these swing bands. You know, Did you ever cover uh, It's Not Unusual? I never did. Well, it no, just struck no. me. What's like, New Pussycat would be my, yeah, more yeah. my speed, I think. Um, but uh, so, so, you know, all the way through the 60s, I was hearing music two ways. I'm hearing it on the radio like all my friends, and I'm hearing it in the front room, my dad learning it off right. these same records. Many of them A-labels, advanced releases. Would you have heard Burt Backrack then? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. In your, in your parents' collection? No, no, no. That would be Just something my dad music. would have brought home to, to learn. I mean, the right, songs sure, that, right. I don't know who, sung by who, Billy J. Kramer, and the, yeah. you know, singing uh, Trains and Boats and Planes, you know. Yeah. Of course, all those songs were, were hits maybe once or twice over, because we'd get the English version, then we'd get the American original come out. Sure. You know? That's why that, all that music went in so deep, because we had English beat groups, as yeah. they were called, which were sort of the second generation yeah. rock and roll band, English ones. Yeah, the Beatles, uh, you know, they, they they got hold of Chuck Berry songs and Miracle songs. But if you were a 10-year-old Beatles fan, you thought they wrote those songs. I, I, I didn't, until I checked the credits, I didn't know who wrote them. I just knew they wrote songs. I thought they wrote everything, you know. But it seems to me that when, not unlike, I guess, a lot of people, that when you heard the Beatles, you knew that something, you know, was magical going on. Well, it hit me. That was the That was the first record. The first record I ever asked my dad for from the ones he would bring home to learn right. to sing on the radio. He was learning Please Please Me in the front room in 63. And what was it? Was it just the harmony? I, don't know. You I don't think know. it was the harmony. I think it was the harmony. I think it was the vocal harmony. The way, you know, it's a it's a peculiar sort of little vocal trick where there's just one note being stated all the time. And, and it just it just did something to me. And uh, I suppose then you you discover that you have certain dispositions. And yeah. you don't, you know, 
at 10 you don't analyze any of that stuff you don't know the names for music uh, right. musical terms and you spent a lot of it. you spend time in the book and it seems to be recurring through the book about the death of a friend of yours when you were a kid well that was a lot later on you know that was that was what really how old that, were you 17 and you saw I, that happen yeah what yeah. happened uh, he, he, you know, we were just in a school annex, yeah. what, 300 yards, and he was just jokingly saying, give us a lift to the, one of the teachers. Yeah. He ran out in the road. It was sort of thing that you wouldn't expect to happen to a 17-year-old. He just didn't see the car. And, you know, it was very shocking to all of us. And, you know, I think now when I look at it, um, he was a, you know, a good friend, and he yeah. was a photographer as well. And, he t you know, he took there's a picture in the book that he took of us in the class, and I'm in the middle of this bunch of schoolboys yeah. playing the guitar. And, you know, he he was sort of, um, you know, he was always getting at me, you've got to sing Working Class Hero. And I said, I can't sing that. It's like, I, I'm not working class. My family came from So this is like class. 69, 70, 71? It's 71. Yeah. And uh, and he was on at me about singing that song. And I said, and he was like, it's really good because it says fucking in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he'd like that, you know. Yeah. He would get up and sing it in front of people and horrify them. And, uh, right. And I, I'd learnt it, but I mean, I never felt convinced in singing it. I said, John Lennon, he, he wasn't really working class either. He was like, come sort of like, <laughs> yeah. sh, sh, I suppose you, the definitions are all different in England. Yeah. I mean, nobody really had a right. very different kind of life. And and then, you know, after he died, I think I I sort of, uh, it just woke me up to the fact that you should do the thing you really you really love most of all, you know. So you felt Because his, life was a little right. bit, you know, more fragile than you think. Because when you're 17, you think you're immortal. You yeah. Know, so, and and then, just to see that happen in front yeah, of it was you. A, it was a really, really... And, and, you know, it was only very recently her sister got back in touch with me and, oh, and, really? and gave me the picture that's in the book. And she had heard that I was working on a book. And that was really beautiful because, you know, she gave me this picture. And I had no memory that he'd taken it. I remember that he took photographs, but I never remembered that he took a picture of me. And it just, you know, it was... It was a nice, nice connection to to the, the way I was thinking. About and you hadn't seen her in thirty, forty years. No, I still haven't seen her. We've she just we've sent corresponded it? to with one another. Yeah, it was yeah. his only sister. Uh, I, you know, I don't even. You know, huh. at that age, you don't you, talk yeah. about your families very much. You, you just might, run you into know. people at school. Yeah. Well, I think you. I think we didn't talk about our feelings and all that sort of stuff. We it just wasn't what you did. Maybe we're English. You know, we yeah, don't really know. do that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, he was like me. I think he was Anglo-Irish. You know, so yeah. there was a little bit of a different sort of com combination cocktail of emotions you know? and and do you do you think that in, in retrospect outside of just learning the existential realities of life is short that the the grief of that or the shock of that sort of stayed with you no no i i, I think it just i thought i'm not going to go to college and learn to do something i don't really want to do i'm going to you know yeah my dad was a musician i'd pick i'd there'd been a guitar in the corner of my room since i was nine what kind Spanish guitar. My, yeah, my parents and, nylon and I string. went. It was originally, and I then I fucked it up by putting steel strings on it. When, <laughs> and when I was about, I don't know, whatever year, what nineteen, I was fourteen. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Man of the World came, yeah. came out with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. The, the real Fleetwood oh Mac. Oh my god. And that was this, you know, this you mentioned a while ago, Peter Green. Yeah. And. Peter Green was somebody that I, I saw him once in our local record shop. He was like this hippie Jesus. Yeah, you know, he yeah. had this amazing look with a yeah. rugby shirt and this long hair. And, yeah. and and he sang in this really soulful way. And I, I, I didn't know until later that he'd played in a legit blues band, you know, right. playing. You Otis, just knew Fleetwood Mac. I just knew these records that suddenly hit. 
and they, it was like he'd got hold of something from the blues and really made some original I guess we'd call it rock music now we'd, it's heavy though no, nobody, nobody really called it rock music then I remember it was sort of like progressive I think there's something about the tone of his voice though yeah, right and it was really you know he sang what I later realized was a little Willie John song I Need right. Your Love So Bad that was the one that I that's the only guitar solo I've ever learned how to play and I, I never could play it well. That was from like one of the first two, the Fleetwood Mac yeah. albums. There's only like three. And, and that was after I've heard the song Man of the World. And, and I suppose it appealed to a, you know, romantic 14-year-old. Right. And, and the, this, this, let me tell you about my life. You know, they say I'm a man of the world. It was a totally improbable song. Yeah. And somebody at my school, an older kid, I think, had the the chord changes written out in chord symbols yeah and i was so obsessed with this song that i sat down and took my guitar out which i'd never bothered with never yeah. learned to play one chord on and taught myself to play that one song at 17 or 14 how old? 14 14 yeah well the thing i think the power of like peter green's voice was like, it's almost heartbreaking somehow yeah. i and think it's still it, one of my very favorite singers i mean he, he, very underrated uh, yeah I and mean, he just wrote the most original so almost like a another version of of rock music that that never really got picked up by anybody. Did you ever he, meet him? And, uh, I didn't ever meet him to because he's still to around. Him. Yeah, he's. I saw a picture of him recently looking well because he had a period where he yes. was not well, and I did see. That's when I saw him. I mean, he he would appear yeah. standing kind of like rather an apparition and yeah. not looking very well right. And that was kind of heartbreaking because I'd seen him this one time looking really heroic. Yeah, and. Yeah. And then just I'd beaten. moved to pick up the guitar just because of what he played. Because of Peter. And, I love hearing and then, that. And then I saw him later, you know, just standing in the street looking kind of almost like he was in a trance and not looking in very good shape at all. And I think he had some problems that they eventually, you know, well, there's a BB, there's yeah. a BBC documentary called Man of the World. Yeah. About his sort of like, the guy finding him. Yeah, and sort of I think it was one of those things of people misdiagnosing him and, sure. and having him on the wrong medication. You know that I, I mean, people were quick to say, "Oh, it was excessive," yeah. and there may have been something, but I don't know anything about that, so I can't say what the truth is. I heard someone told me, and I don't know if it's true, that BB uh, King said that Peter Green was the only guitar player that ever made him cry. Well, that's a you know that's How, a, it's great. You know, right? it's it's it for me it, all the other you know guys who were sort of you know English blues guitar players. Yeah. I, I, they are all, there's many admirable musicians among them, but yeah. the only one that really moves me and I, you know, I've ever really spent any time listening to is Peter. Uh, is Peter Green. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on yeah, that. Yeah. And he actually was the guy that inspired you to play guitar. Yeah. Even though I never wanted to play solo lines. I mean, it was, that was the other thing. It was like he was a songwriter. Yeah. And he had this sort of strange, fatalistic, romantic. Uh, sound which appealed to me at that age and I still love the song and it, it has a little suspension yeah. in it and these little tricks so once I'd learned all the chords I mean there might be nine chords in that song yeah. far more than you would ever have to learn from the average campfire song sure or a blues song even. yeah I never ever wanted to play blues in that way yeah uh, so I I then found I could tear through all these songs which up until then had just been on records like I could play Beatles songs I, I, oh these these are actually a lot simpler than I thought, you know, they seem beyond me because when you're a kid, I think you just accept everything all at once. You don't pick it apart. So you know? you're self taught, you're self taught by chord charts. I mean, you were yeah, I used to, and then I bought these these uh, songbooks which were had simplified changes because they were cheaper. Yeah, and they just were beginners books. And then my ear told me the chords were wrong, and then I'd sneak into the shop and look at the where the diminished chords were and all these major sevenths, and you know, learn gradually about harmony. And also, you learned how to play lead somewhere. No, I never did really. You no. can play lead. I just put my fingers anywhere and hope for the best. <laughs> Come 
I mean, no, it's true. So you're I always mean, just a melody I still, guy? I'm, I really, yeah, in my head I can hear complicated harmony. Yeah. And I still have deliberately not learned the, the guitar. And I never played scales. Yeah. Uh, or certainly never blues scales. I just play instinctively what I hear. And I think it's good having like a complicated head for the accompanying harmony. But there are some leads on your records. Yeah, but they're all just sort of luck. <laughs> my my old my old uh, musical partner from Liverpool when I was seventeen said uh, every solo I launched into I'd I'd say I had a rabbit's foot in, yeah. my, in my jacket pocket to get me through it and I really it's all I never thought of myself as a guitar player I so, couldn't get I couldn't get a job in anybody else's band yeah but just some things I hear that's a gift and then I work out where they are on the yeah. guitar and I left it I left the idiot part of the guitar playing yeah. Because it's important. I mean, yeah. they, they, that's that's the noble tradition. Well, of, you find your feel through what you do. Yeah. Well, you know, that's like the, the the big stupid riff is the thing I like. Yeah. And that just works for certain kinds of song. And, for, and then I can hear all the other stuff and arrange all the parts, uh, you know, and, and tell people what to play or even I've learned to write it down. But with the guitar, you want to really just keep that keep the keep alive the inner link ray you know when you look at yourself in in in, in retrospect of your entire career how, do you see yourself as a band leader to some degree songwriter 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 that's what you call band yourself. leader maybe second arranger singer. i guess that's what it's called but i didn't think because i that, i was no. looking at some stuff and i was trying to figure out you didn't you don't you didn't do a lot of producing on your own right no it was not a thing you wanted to do I only ever wanted to stop other people fucking up the groups and I liked like the specials particularly that yeah I really loved them and, yeah and I you know I just I was between it was like the three or four weeks between albums or tours you know right <laughs> working pretty consistently then and and I just wanted to make sure that nobody polished them up beyond what I loved about them when I heard them live. And, and I just turned up the faders and they did it. You and know? you did the first record yeah. of the specials yeah. and the first Pogues record. Same sort of thing. It was like there were some parts I had to play, yeah. because, you know, because there were, there, were some, there were some players that could play really well and some players that couldn't play at all. Right. And, but it, but it kind of worked, you know, and, uh, and, and it had this, th both those records was very similar and they were just like a, a electric. Yeah. Know? Even though there were actually some, in some cases no electric instruments on it. They had a... Well, the players a lot of ac acoustic stuff yeah, on that first record. but it record. was like driven by the yeah, yeah, incredible yeah. words. Yeah, it was, a, it was a hell of a record. Yeah. So you, you, you were in a duo for a while with that guy you yeah. just mentioned. What, yeah. What was his name? Alan Mays. What ha was, how, where'd he end up? He ended up in Austin, Texas. We reformed our group last night. I oh, was, you did? I, I was on the, this book tour, and uh, uh, yeah, and I, I rang him up and said, you know, I've been showing pictures from trying yeah. to locate the, you know, the, the apprenticeship of music, and yeah. I said, I've got a picture of us playing to a bunch of totally bewildered-looking <laughs> middle-aged people at, at a poetry society uh -huh. in Liverpool yeah. in 71, and I've like a stripy sweater on, like a member of the Standells, yeah. and uh, the and he's like much more. He was always a more confident, more polished player. And uh, I said, I've got, and he gave me a demo tape that he had kept. That we, just you know, his last, just demo. the other day. No, he gave it to me oh. ages ago, and it was, and it's, you know. It, I never. I didn't know anything about recording. Yeah. It was a like tape recorder I got right. with my dad. I didn't know you were supposed to clean the heads. Right. So that even though the thing is recorded in 1971, it sounds like it's recorded in 1935. <laughs> you know, it's like it's all muffly. What was the experience of listening to that? Well, you know, you could, I could hear who we were, who we liked. Could you hear yourself though? Uh, on certain notes, right. just on certain kind of phrases, and there's something in that you that's just you're born with, and then. And when did you get back together with him? Yesterday? Yeah, and I, I said, you, you know, I'm going. I'm telling the story. It's a bit in the book where I'm saying, you know, the 
some of the comical things sure. that happen in yeah. your apprenticeship. And I thought, wouldn't it you know, be great if we, when I say this story, if I just pull, pull the curtain back and then we do it right now. And it was a joyful thing to sing again. You know, we just sang this song I wrote when I was 17. And really? We sang a, a, sang a Van Morrison song that we used to do. Which Van Morrison song? Domino. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I know you're a big Astral Weeks fan. Yeah, but you could never play that music. Yeah, you couldn't hard. cover that yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the ones from, truthfully, the Bannon Street Choir record was where I stole all the rhythms from my own is true. But nobody kind of caught that because they were convinced I was something to do with the London thing. Well, you said something very interesting in the book about you know when you try to sound like somebody else, that's where you might sort of happen upon your own sound I because you're doing almost, it badly. That's almost certainly it, yeah. I mean, I, and, you know... I, I, I would hear, like, uh, You Ain't Living Until You're Loving by Marvin Gaye and yeah. Tammy Terrell. I didn't even know how many instruments were on that record. Right. I, even when I was a professional musician, I yeah. thought it was an orchestra. Right. Uh, when I went to Hitsville to visit in the early 80s and I found the, the room was only the same size as studios that I'd recorded, I was astounded. I thought, it must be a big cathedral of a place. Because sure. it just, in my imagination, it always sounded so huge. Well, so when you were a kid, you are listening to that, or as you're becoming a, a more proficient musician, you're listening to the Motown stuff, and you're listening to... We never called it Motown. Then. I know. What'd you we call it? We called it Tamla. Why? I don't know. It was just, it was a convention. But it, it had was, nothing to do with anything? You can't trace that Tamla Motown. Tamla Motown. That was the name. And they said Tamla on the label. On the label. Yeah. So there was a label thing. Yeah. It, when they were imported, they said Tamla. Yeah. There's Tamla. It was like, you, you got any Tamla records? You know, I and never heard Motown until much later. Where did the love for, how did you get to country? That was a little bit later. It was really but through, I, I really loved the birds. Like okay. The birds. You know, Graham the, Parsons. I liked all this music, all those groups, you know, the, through the 60s, the English ones. Yeah. And the, obviously the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, the Stones more the later records you know, sure. like, like Aftermath not so much the real like blues Beggars records. even before that oh, Aftermath yeah. Between the Buttons or yeah, really, yeah. those I, I I definitely you know took them apart and put it, them back together in my own way uh-huh. um, but uh, the small faces oh, not yeah. the faces the small sure. faces with Steve, Steve Marriott, Marriott yeah. yeah the Kinks because they tell stories yeah. you know and uh, and then the American group who really spoke to me first of really all the 60s groups yeah the birds and i liked everything they did you know when they were folk rock and then they were raga rock and then there was space rock and then yeah every record had another name and i suppose now i realize that was probably as silly as people when people i put my records out this is new wave right I, we never said that that sure. was just made up by a a&r man or something you know? yeah but you never sought out to work with mcguinn i did work with you McGuinn. did one which record mcguinn plays on the first track on spike Oh, he did. Yeah, it's a, it's the three max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's McCartney, McGuinn, and me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was that a, a big day? They weren't in the room together, but oh. they recorded their parts separately. But it was, yeah. I was, you know, I was. I said in the book, I said when I, you were jumping ahead, but you know, I after I made all the records with the attractions, which were com- for the main part combo records, where we just played in the room. What do you consider the last attractions record? Imperial Bedroom. Oh, what a great yeah. I mean, we all played together on the records. That's really the last one. Well, I suppose Blood and Chocolate is an, attra- is an attractions record, mm-hmm. but it's that we're working a kind of against ourselves there. That's that's how it kind of sounds tense and like good, like it is, right? You know? So because you're like yeah. at odds. Uh, well, they weren't very happy about me working with T-Bone Burnett in the year before. They didn't, you know, that sort of blew. But we had already kind of run run out of the formula of working together, and, and yet we couldn't break the habit. It was the truth of it, you know. So what what did? Um, because I know, like, I had Nick Lowe in here, yeah. and, like, it's very hard for me to manage musical history, especially, yeah. you know, someone who's been at it as long as you. And I and I, and I talked to Nick, but I, I didn't... Where did that whole... What facilitated the change that enabled you 
to 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 sort of be so defined in the moment that you were defined because there was a it seemed like the sound of england was changing all the music that was coming out of there the pop music that they were calling away but you the squeeze and a few other bands were honoring some very sophisticated pop music well as as the way the way i see it yeah is that we had the 60s and all these like very tight like short records like the small faces and the kinks and obviously the primary the beatles and then there was psychedelic music and then progressive and right. prog rock and all these was that ever your thing never yeah and couldn't see and, it. and so the r&b thing really yeah. kind of carried me through and and what they called wooden music you know west coast american folk music laurel canyon introspe- stuff yeah, yeah yeah more introspective so those two things for me were running along parallel right i you know i told i moved to liverpool to finish my schooling in 1970 yeah and discovered that nobody in the school would admit to liking uh, Tamla or Stax that was kind of as people saying that's music for divvies and uh, what's I mean, a divvy sort of like leery kind of stupid and oh. I went because I guess you know they were all like, into like, like hooligans uh, liked it you know oh, and right. I went no but that's what we've been da- you know at, at different parts of the country you have different tastes yeah and there were, you know I listened to a lot of Rocksteady and, and early reggae before yeah. the Rasta reggae kind of. Well, that was mu- that was much more popular early on. Very popular. In it was like England. the second string right. music. Really, it was almost right. like another kind of R and B. Right. It was like the underlying. We music. didn't get that here till much it later. Never really caught on. No. That's why Americans can't play it. Right. Know? And um, the uh, so we had all that music. That's the sort of dance teenage dance music. Sure. Like Motown, dub music too. What you call Motown? No, long before dub. dub yeah. Uh, you know, and all these like records on the Trojan label long before we even heard of the Whalers. You know? Yeah. Um, and then then I went to Liverpool and everybody was listening to psychedelic music. They listened to whole sides of Pink Floyd. I could never, I was bewildered me that music. Right. I liked... Um, well, did you think it was a waste of time? or yeah. it, didn't sound, well, it took a long time. I knew that. You know, I liked see Emily play. I love see Emily play right. and Arnold right. Lane. And after that, I just glazed over, you know. And Led Zeppelin, I couldn't... Under, I thought, if you want to listen to that, why didn't you just listen to Howlin' Wolf? You know right. I mean? It's yeah, like, it's, okay, yeah. You know, the first uh, two records. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, just, it just... I just couldn't get it. So I went the other way. I went super quiet and I liked all, you know, and... Well, you know what's interesting about you know, that Johnny is that... Mitchell you know who and, else and was like that? People. Who? I had Huey Lewis in here. And Huey grew up in the hippie zone. Yeah. He grew up in like... In Marin. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and he was an R&B guy. He didn't yeah. like the hippie shit. And it turns out that like his, the band he was with backed you on the first record, yeah, right? he was down the pub yeah, chasing, right, chasing right. girls probably. I don't know what he was up to. Him and uh, the two singers from Clover, the, I mean, they were... Yeah. This band was a, a sort of a cult band that had had a couple of records. They were persuaded by my first manager, Jake Riviera, to come and seek their fortune in London at probably the worst time that an accomplished... The end of the pub rock business? Yeah, the pub the pub rock, as it was called. I don't ever, again, I don't remember I don't, anybody ever calling it that. What was that, though? I don't even know what well, it was. I mean, to you all in America, you yeah. know, it's a very... I know that the... I came to understand that music was played in bars, and so right. bars sounded kind of cooler yeah. than... But pub, like, who were the bands? Pub, pubs. Well, there were bands like the one Nick Lowe was in, Clover Schwartz. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, Brinsley Schwartz. And the you co- liked them though, right? Oh yeah, they yeah. Were, they were the band that I really, you know, that like, was Nick Lowe's band, right? Yeah. Well, he was the main songwriter. Yeah. And the um, and then you know Clover with this band that people whispered about. Have you heard Clover? Have you got the record? Was really hard to get. It's American band. American band, and they in really after the moment that they should have come to London they were persuaded they were. To, to, to come to London <laughs> they were they were they were signed to a major record label yeah. so they were they were doing better than me right I was still working in an office and I was making demos really for stiff records you didn't have a band no I didn't have a band so they said well you can use the drummer 
and John McPhee, the guitar player, and Nick Lowell play bass, and he's going to produce these two songs. And they saw something in that, and then I'd turn up at the office with a tape with another five songs on it, and then we'll record these four. So now you've got to go. We learned the first two just in the studio. What was the ne first song you wrote? Uh, well, the first one I recorded was uh, Radio Sweetheart, uh -huh. which wasn't on an album. It was just on a B-side, and uh, and Mystery Dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which was on mine. It was true eventually. That's it, like that's actually the first song of yours. Because like, I got your first record in a box of records that was given to me by... I worked at a restaurant, and the record mm. store next door catered primarily to disco and dance music yeah. and R&B, and had all these rock records. They're like, we don't know what to do with them. And I took them, and that was the year your first record came out, and I mm. put it on. I was like, what the fuck is this? Who's this guy? <laughs> this is amazing. That's what we thought. <laughs> but, you know, it was... But I'm a Chuck Berry head, so Mystery yeah, Dance. I was yeah, like, that's It was a shit. rock and roll model. Yeah. You know, and I, I had all these crazy ideas that... I, a new, it was to me. It was a novelty song, right? And I, I couldn't like understand. Like a play what, on an old song. It was sort of a play on an old right. song. So I wanted to make it sound as modern as possible. So I played it all downstrokes. I didn't want it to swing. I mean, all crazy, all things that are completely wrong about rock and yeah. roll. Nick just didn't ignore didn't me get... and had the band play it the way he heard it, and it came out sounding great. Um, well, he comes from that. Like him and Dave Edmonds are. Yeah, you know, they well, bounce it was like a that. It was really a demo right. for Dave Edmonds. It was. It a was. Demo, oh, really? A demo. You had in mind for him? Well, I didn't. They did. Oh, really? And they didn't really see what how I fitted in because I didn't look like I should be in a group. You know. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, so, so, anyway, I, they would then send me to the country to to this house where Clover had been because some of the guys in Clover had families. Yeah. So they were living in the getting it together in the country style out of right, this place right. called Headley Grange. Uh huh which had previously been used by, by Led Zeppelin and uh -huh. Bad Company and these groups to yeah. get it together, you know. I think, yeah. I think Stairway to Heaven was written there. Oh, really? The words, you know, the ghost of Robert Plant would lurk in the West Wing, you know. And, um, and he's still alive. That's what's weird. <laughs> yeah, that was strange. Yeah. So I'd go down there and I'd have to spend the night and we'd rehearse the songs. And you're this little kid, in a way. Well, I wasn't really. I was working in an office. I was 20, uh, 21, 22. Was that when you were working 20. for the Cologne Company? For the I was working for Elizabeth Arden. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, it was in the day I was in an air-conditioned cubicle with a little computer, which is way, you know, yeah. it couldn't do anything your phone can do. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, right, So sure. it was like a very primitive computer. Took up the whole room. The whole room, chatter away. <laughs> and I could bullshit like crazy about the other computer. It's not ready. It's in a bad mood. I'd make up all things. <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone. I'm writing these right. songs. And then I'd written all these tunes. I'd take them down, show them to the, the, the these guys who were way more accomplished than anybody I'd played with. And they would, you know, play it back to me sort of a little bit different than I heard it in my head, truthfully. A little bit slicker, uh -huh. a little bit slower as well, more swinging. Uh -huh. And the common ground I found was like the the guitar player, John McPhee, had actually, I knew he'd played on a Van Morrison record. Mm -hmm. So that was exciting to me, you know. Sure. And, I, and their own records, the Clover records, I really dug them, but they weren't the kind of music I was trying to write, you know, which was a little bit faster. Uh -huh. um, so then we'd go up to this tiny little studio uh, uh, pathway, and it was like, really, this room would, was generous in space. I mean, yeah. the whole, if you imagine a whole band in a room of this size. Right. So, of course, everything went, every instrument went on to every other instrument, and that's usually a bad thing. Right. But for some reason, in this little space, the the fact that the drums could be heard on my vocal might create some sort of weird excitement. And actually, when you go back and look at most of the historic recording studios, they're like that. That sort of has some freak thing, like Sun sure. is like that. And so you played all that live to tape. Yeah, like, pretty much live. Yeah. Uh huh. I mean, I think the only thing I dubbed on, say, Mystery Dance, was the piano because we didn't have a piano player, so I could just about play the the part. Right. But so, I couldn't do the sweep down the keys like Jerry Lee. So so. Nick Lowe had to stand there with the drumstick and I said now and he's like he'd run it down the keys you know so like, I mean just totally like held together with 
pieces of sticky but that, tape. But clearly, know. the energy you brought to it and the, and the yeah. menace of everyone on top of each other made it. The it sort of made the electric thing. thing. And it was, it, you know, when it's played loud to you and you've not been in a studio with competent musicians before. Yeah. It's very thrilling. Sure. Then you take it home, and I played it on my little same tape recorder I was telling you about, yeah. where I hadn't cleaned the heads for twenty years. Uh-huh. And I goes, "Oh, it sounds a bit muted, you know." And I was, I remember coming home and thinking, "Oh, it doesn't sound quite as good because <laughs> yeah. it's not coming through these giant speakers and in a and, studio, a studio monitor, and with Nick Lowe shouting, you know, it's great, you know, because that was his style of pr- producing. How did, that, how did you build that relationship with him? He, like he saw you or what? Well, I, I, I had, I'd been this kid that uh, that was sort of hanging around his group from right. say 73 to 76 right that's so those three said. years You're just hanging I'm, around I was just being, oh, yeah. annoying guy that's that guy again he's going to start asking me questions about songwriting <laughs> and little by little I kind of got I've got something here that's okay you know? yeah and they would the group he was in they dug out a lot of old songs yeah. so I, I had this mixture of lots of old songs going around in my head and the new ones I was trying to write uh-huh. And I'd be somebody, somebody different every week. You know, right. I thought it was going to be John Prine, then I thought it was going to be Randy Newman, then I thought it was going to be Lowell George, and I thought it was going to be. You can kind of hear that on that first record a little. Well, well I mean, I, you did a you yeah. did a reggae bit, and you did a yeah. sort of a country bit, right? Allison is relatively country, right? Well, to me, it was based on. Do you want to know what it was based on? Sure. It was based on Ghetto Child by the what you call the Spinners, what we call the Detroit Spinners. Okay. And then you had uh, you know, Mystery Dance, and then yeah, that like, was the really only the, the there were like some rock and roll songs. Yeah, yeah. I I could tell you you know who I thought we were sounding like, but of course filtered through this American band, it came out sounding kind of different. Mm-hmm. And then you know they they the, the when they eventually decided that I was a recording artist and not just a backroom songwriter, they said you got to quit your job and we've got to form a band. We're going to put this album out. Can you go professional? Right. But you couldn't uh, take that band. Well, I couldn't say that band had already a tour planned and they had a, their own album coming out. Right. I uh, I had a family, so I, I couldn't just... You, you had know, one qu- child then? Yeah, and I couldn't just quit and just do, you know, just do what I wanted. I had to I had to say, well, can you pay me enough money, the same money as I'm earning? I wasn't earning a lot of money. And they said, yes, we can. And they gave me, I think they gave me £100 and, um, and, a, and a battery-powered amplifier. That was my, you know, and I went and bought back with the with the money that they yeah. gave me, I went back and bought all the records I'd had to sell to pay the bills. You know, like, just to get it back in your head. Yeah, just to get like, a few records that yeah. I had to part with. Then when you the, like when what? You had well, I'd, I think I'd had to, a couple of Beatles records that yeah. I'd had to get rid of. You know, the yeah. ones I kept my with the Beatles and I kept my you know revolver, but maybe sure. I'd let you know Beatles for sale go. Or something right. Like so now, like, how much do you think you were driven? Do you think that if you didn't have the family, it would have been a completely different life for you? I mean, were you like, because I talked to guys, there's a difference between someone who knows they have to provide, certainly, and somebody who's just sort of like, nah, I can do whatever I want. Uh, I just, it's in, there's one side of my family that's kind of a dreamy, kind of doesn't have any sense of responsibility. My dad, actually. <laughs> yeah. Then my grandfather, my, uh, before him, it was he traveled as well. He was also a musician. He was a ship's musician. Yeah. And But my other grandfather was like a guy who came out of, you know, the First World War and then never was out of work until he died. You right. Know? And uh, I'm a bit like him. Uh-huh. I've worked every day of my life since I was So lucky you got that. Yeah, I've got that Protestant work ethic, yeah. So, so to put together the attractions, what became the attractions, how did that happen? Advert in the musical papers, you know, oh, then that's a, worth- a rocking combo or something. I don't know. We'd, no time wasters. They would have all these sayings, you know. Like, sure. Uh, you know, they would do- and you auditioned people? or these we did. The- we auditioned, uh, you know, Pete Thomas was always going to be the drummer. We yeah, got, I, I see him been, around. He'd been yeah. living in... He's still playing with you now, isn't he? Oh, yeah. 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 He'd been living in um, 
he'd been living in California for a couple of years. He'd been playing uh, with John Stewart, not, yeah. not the satirical John Stewart, the, right. the uh, Daydream Believer. Right, right, right. And um, so he'd had an experience of living in Topanga and living in Marin, uh-huh. and he'd been persuaded to come back to London, really, to be in my band. And uh, the other two guys, we found just out of the want ads, you know. And Steve, you like it seems like your, your relationship with this band, you know, really sort of collaboratively built the sound that you become known for, right? I, I, yeah, well, I mean, Steve was a very accomplished musician, even though he was very young. He was much younger than us. He was, like, yeah. not, I think he was 18. Actually. So he was like the wizard? He, everyone was yeah. sort of like, oh my God. I didn't have to really play anything. That's <laughs> yeah. why you say about guitar playing. Yeah. When you've got a guy, you know, to your, you know, to your right, who's yeah. playing all these incredible things, you... I let him ha- take it, and the bass player Bruce was also very active. He didn't hardly play the bass, really. He just sort of played that like it was like playing cello or something. Uh-huh. Was always playing melodies, which were great. Right. And between us, we sort of you know a lot of great, and um, particularly English rock and roll bands don't take the conventional roles. Think about the Who. Yeah. What kind of thing is that? You know, yeah. you've got a guy soloing the whole time, and another the guy drummer playing big chords <laughs> on the bass, and then yeah. this other. You know, it's completely it shouldn't make sense. And um, we sort of took that. The confidence to go that way we didn't feel like we had to be like any other group so when really. it seems that you're i mean you're sir you are capable of very elaborate melodies is that something that you did on your own or, or did you kind of pick up stuff from the band like no you, no no i i i wrote all the songs i mean there was oh, nobody yeah. else could write the songs well no me. not write the nobody actual could, lyrics nobody, but all the, the music oh really no they couldn't none of them really steve can write yeah but they were not songwriters and they, they could they could sometimes conceive parts but mm-hmm. they had to have the chord structure to do that so once in a while, I'd give them a riff and they would syncopate it in some way. You know, like there would be a little way sure. to deliver it that yeah. became distinctive. But the the number of records in which they did that were much smaller than the ones in which I dictated all the parts. Sure. Know? So you arc. So you do the you do Miami's True. This year's model Armed Forces Get Happy, and that's like an arc of the of the attractions. And then you, what makes you do a country record in the middle of all that of covers? Uh, heartbreak. Uh, really. I mean, it was like I got you know I'd made a lot of stupid mistakes you know on the mm-hmm. road and got my you know myself in a lot of trouble. And, like your dad. I suppose it was. I never ever thought, oh, you know, thanks, Dad, you, you made me do this. I, I, believe me, I, I never ever thought, you know, never blamed him. You got to no, no, no. But I mean, like, no. isn't it interesting to you in some way? Well, I went and writing it down. Obviously, it was because yeah. you know, I le- later learned that, yeah. that perhaps it was something in him that we both had. But and I knew it was there. Yeah, and I could see it in some of the songs, and it kind of pissed me off that I, that I. I wrote these things that which were predictions of the mistakes I made. Uh-huh. I mean, Allison and Strange yeah, yeah. in the House and these early songs. I sort of thought, I wrote them almost to like scare away the, right. the ghosts, you know. So you had a sensitivity to it, to your own. I wouldn't call it sensitivity. But, uh, but yeah. I mean, in order to sort of know that you had that in your heart before it happened. Uh, yeah. it, well, it's something that's something that maybe songwriters can uh, yeah. have. It's not a very necessary and admirable quality, but <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know, I can see it now with the benefit of hindsight. And then, you know, then you try to work out in the best way you can. If you can't explain yourself and you can't be forgiven, yeah, right. then I suppose you work some some of the ideas out and the complexity of it in lyrics, hoping that other people maybe get something from it. I mean, the reason to sing about stuff out loud is not just to indulge yourself or uh-huh. to write your diary because you're taking th- feelings or experiences you had and probably sometimes 
displacing them a little bit, putting them in a voice of a character, changing whether you're saying it in first person or third person. Well, that's what always blew me yeah. away. When I had Nick in here and he played the, you know, the beast in me, you know, sitting right there yeah. on an acoustic, right. like I always assume like, man, this guy's lived it. But, but, he, but he, did he tell you the story? Did he tell you the story about writing it? And, for Johnny Cash, for Johnny, right? In the middle of the night. And he tells a story about, you know, in the middle of the night, he was Johnny Cash. Oh. You know, in, no, in sort of, you know, sort of in, in sort of, emboldened by maybe a few drinks yeah, right, you know, yeah. he he thought himself into the character that he was trying to create but that's for a, the first time I ever yeah. learned that that songwriters write in character like I never thought of that I yeah. always thought that everybody was a first person guy that well uh, there's a difference isn't it I mean yeah. I the first music that I was aware of I didn't know who'd written it it was right. like Frank Sinatra was singing I right. Put You Under My Skin right but later on when I got curious as to who wrote those songs and I wanted to write in that way yeah uh, you know that that with that little bit of romantic distance, sure. Um, you discover that those songwriters put a lot of heart and soul, and there's all, and if you really get down deep into the biographies of Lorenz Hart and mm -hmm. Johnny Mercy, you'll find all these really heartbreaking stories about what lies behind songs we take for granted yeah. that don't seem that personal because we've heard them so many times. Sure, and their skill was to put everything they knew and felt into songs that could be universally understood. When you get into the 1960s, you've got Smokey Robinson singing I Second That Emotion, which is a catchphrase that summons up a load of ideas that you feel when you hear it. And you've got Joni Mitchell singing The Last Time I Saw Richard, which is describing something that's obviously a very literal scene that you can't actually say, I've lived that. Right. It's not like you're singing... It's, a, Some, it's, it's not an everyman kind of subject, you it's know. A, it's, it, there's a, it's and a, I learned from both things. Right. I learned from... Well, all of those things. I learned from Lorenz Hart. I learned from... Lennon and McCartney learned from Smokey Robinson. But when the door opens in the 60s to very different ways to write, the possibility of writing very sp specific experiences, you then have to judge how well you can do that. And obviously, Joni Mitchell did it incredibly well. What does that depend on? In your, what's the balance? Well, it depends on being a genius, I guess, because which I'm not. You know, I, I mean, don't know if that's true. I, I'm like I work have to work right. at seeing whether I can render the scene sufficiently emotionally r recognizable to somebody else. Whereas she actually wrote what one assumes are very literal representations of certain exchanges. They're too specific. The songs, right? You know, Bob Dylan went from writing things that people stood and linked arms to sing which you know like in the manner of right. times are changing and blowing in the wind yeah to writing a year later mr tambourine man and it, it's all right ma the possibilities oh. the, in the possibilities of song completely change in in just two right. years visions of joanna and then, yeah and the all these things that are, if you're a kid growing up in the era of uh i want to hold your hand mm -hmm. it's a little bit different when the same s singers suddenly singing a song that goes was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure yeah i mean what the hell does that mean you know yeah. i mean it's I, I had no idea you know it kind of made me feel i was attracted to it yeah but it's going oh i don't know about that you know like <laughs> it's kind of sounds kind of sexy but kind of in a but that, uh, you know when you're and 14, you say you're not you know, sensitive you're very sensitive to these these the power of these lyrics you don't, you're that, you don't think it's odd to kind of go to grow up at the same pace as the just like that that five or six years that separate you from being able to live that experience from being able to hear it and recognize yeah. it, you know going from childhood to teenage sure you know? it's well you don't understand it but you feel it yeah i knew it in oddly enough i knew it in sort of burt Bacharach songs because 
people think of those as being very um, you know restrained and they talk about easy listening and all this nonsense it's very sad some of it very tragic and yeah. ca- and kind of you know carnal yeah. yeah carnal but it's not in the words it's in the music oh yeah it's the music that's working on you what is that that cuz he does a thing that and then you would know but there there seems to be a progression that he does that involves chords that you know deliver something well he that, knows about tension you know and drama yeah and he also you know he wrote famously this song anyone had a heart and people are supposed to have rebelled when he put the music down cuz it's actually when you look at it written down it's yeah. lots of odd bars it's not in four four right is there's funny bars and musicians would would say this is too difficult to play and his direction was feel it don't count it right and if you sing it to yourself without thinking about where the bar lines are yeah. it makes complete sense and if huh. you straightened it out it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as effect it wouldn't be tense right and it wouldn't represent that desperation right and that's what i learned from listening to my course when i first heard the song it just had a strange unsettling effect it took me years to <laughs> right to understand what it to was unpack it and then you know try my pathetic way to kind of you know get that effect into any of my songs when did you start doing that accidents will happen Mm -hmm. that was sort of a feeling that i was like if i could just get that tension where you just got to announce things just before they happen not just like strum through the right right and when you did it like so if if uh so you had a country music producer produce um almost blue yeah so you get so you work through a certain amount of emotions through that, and then Imperial Bedroom is just this this mind blowing combination of a lot of things. It's complete. Di- it's it seems very different than the other four attractions record. Well, maybe maybe because we'd gone and I'd worked out, you know, I'd, the the things that you know the heartbreak side I found represented in these songs I'd chosen that nobody expected us to record. Also gave us gave me a break from writing. I wasn't writing any songs for maybe three months, you know. Beyond, <laughs> like I can't. I've listened to Beyond Belief like I, hundreds of times. Yeah, well, then I'd worked out what I wanted to put on the next record, and that was a much, you know. And then we also gave ourselves the liberty of this using. It was the first time I used the studio like an instrument, you know, like. And you had of, Je- what Jeff is Jeff Emmerich, Jeff yeah, Emmerich, yeah. the guy who did uh, the Beatles stuff. Which Beatles albums did he do? R- Revolver so, and, right. and Sgt. Pepper, most famously, he yeah. did a lot of things. But I mean, he had also worked at Abbey Road and worked with every kind of conceivable musician. He'd worked with Judy Garland. He'd worked with orchestras, so he knew everything about mic placement and drama. And he was a musician. Um, did you, you learn know, from him? You did, but in, it never felt like learning. We right. were just doing it. And right. we were kind of on a voyage to try anything. Let, you know, let's hire a harpsichord. Let's, you know, get, let Steve write for an orchestra. And it was, you know, we, th- we thought we were doing our sort of moment where you go in and, and you just let everything happen yeah that you can imagine and so, and then we're, and jeff was the one who had to make it so make after sense. imperial bedroom do you mm-hmm. do you separate your 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 sort of your catalog of work into 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 sections like a period no and like i mean what I, happens I, I don't really think in terms of of albums so much after i mean i'm aware that that you know like for instance in america people say oh that great track from miami is true yeah watching the detectives it's yeah. not on the album it was a single that came out between right but so because the record came out later it was added and Radio Radio is not on uh, this year's model either. And and what's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding is not on Armed Forces, not as we conceive them. The right. records had different endings. It, we were one of the last kind of periods of groups that actually released singles that weren't supposed to be on albums. Was there a point where you started to honor your, your own vision in light of the fact that... Was there a point where you said, I don't know if I, you know, if I want to chase making hit records? No, I mean, quite the opposite, I think. After the you know the the freedom of Imperial Bedroom and right. imagining all these different types of songs from 
something like Beyond Belief, which is right. very, you know, sort of a, a, a different blueprint for rock and roll, and something which had an obvious model like Almost Blue, which was yeah. written as if it were a standard. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, I was trying to do all these different forms of songs that I heard in my head, and, and I was letting particularly Steve and my own vocal arranging, you know, take it. And then we, you know, we, it still seemed to matter that we had something on the radio. So we went to work with, with you know, a producer that could sort of tailor our record to get, you know, over to a, a broader audience. Which producer? Made, Clive Langer and Alan Stanley, and they made Every Day I Write the Book, which was a hit. Huge. But we also made Shipbuilding on the same record, which yeah. was a very serious song, and it came out of current, rec you know, recent events, and it was written with Clive, you know, his music, my words. And What, we, what was the relationship with T-Bone like? I mean, why did you seek each other out? Well, I, I think then we made one more record with Clive and Alan, which was not so successful right. creatively. And I and I just sort of wanted to go back to how I did it, which was just to write the songs on the guitar and yeah. and just play them. Right. So I went out and did that, and sort of I thought, oh, this is this is this feels right, you know. And he was uh, he, and he was there, and and that led to you know maybe arranging the songs differently with the voice to the fore, and uh, making King of America. And then like uh, when you started to 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 do some of the the ensemble pieces, the classical with the uh, uh, was mm. the broad uh, Brodsky, yeah, yeah. Because I remember that came out, and, and in my mind, I was sort of like, what's he doing? Well, I think people are going to say that, you know, I mean... What were I you mean, exploring, got, though? Was it, it was sort of out of your your comfort zone, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Well, that's good. You yeah, know, sure, you know, of like Each of these things I've described, really, yeah. you know, Imperial Bedroom, some people were horrified by it because, of, what's it's got an orchestra on it, and, you know, then they've gone country. I mean, to me, it was like, well, the birds did this. They yeah. went through all these things as they were following their feelings. The Beatles, every record... I remember as a Beatles fan thinking, oh, they've lost it now. This <laughs> Sergeant Pepper, what a load of rubbish. And then I couldn't live without it. You know, it would be, <laughs> right, every right. record would come out and it would be a, such a shock because of the difference. I, I didn't think you were... I actually thought, maybe yeah. educated by the, 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 the records I'd loved... I felt like the next record you made should be utterly different, not the same as the one you no, made that, before. No, that's absolutely true, but so that's e not... Even when it came to form, you know, I, by that point, I started to listen to the songs that came out of classical music, and I had friends, these young friends who, you know, they played as vibrantly to me, in my mind. They they played with the immediacy that I didn't hear in some rock and roll music at that time. Right. So I just wanted to make some music with them, and it's driven me to have to learn certain communicative skills like the codes of music to literally be able to write it down not sort of like so i can go on put a professor's hat on you know it's like right it's still to just sing stories but what, was there a point where you were getting pressure to to recapture whatever your your last hit was you never had that pressure from a record company or anybody you kind I of tried it a few times but <laughs> what more could they do to me you know i mean it's never really been very successful i just <laughs> I've been using their money to do what I wanted for until the basically the record business dissolved. I mean, I I worked at it until it till it isn't it gone now? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I we mean, can still get music apparently. Pa apparently, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you know, I honestly, I mean, I have to give credit to the people who did give me the money to do all these different yeah. experiments. And some of them, some of it was, they were people that understood I want I was gonna not gonna keep to the my side of the bargain if my side of the bargain meant making the same record I already made. Sure. And some people were horrified when we, when we handed in King of America. They took it and buried it in the desert, you know. Yeah. And, 
blood and chocolate. It's yeah. too distorted. Yeah. You know. What about Spike? It's too distorted. Spike I mean, too Spike distorted. Was great. Like this yeah. blood and chocolate comes out in eighty six. Yeah. Nirvana turn up in what, ninety two? Yeah. Like which is distorted? Which yeah. is too distorted? You know? I mean it was just, <laughs> it was just such know. an idiotic yeah, yeah. thing. It's just a it's just music, you know. Yeah. Like, there's nothing to fear, you know. So let's talk yeah. like the collaboration with Burt Bacharach was uh, I imagine amazing experience for you well in a in a way i'd learned all these things about the, the you know what it was right. to get i get to kind of look over his shoulder and go oh that's how you do it ah. but you know the more amazing thing to me was his the openness he had to writing uh music with with another songwriter he he'd never, done, he'd never oh, done really? that before he'd never done it once before with with neil diamond and other than that he'd never written this volume of songs with anybody else because we ended up having a musical dialogue people always assumed I would just be the lyricist yeah but our first song was really quite uh, evenly proportioned contribution music oh that must have been exciting and you know instead of like being affronted by the yeah. fact that I was writing music he you know that's the great thing about him he's he it, it, the story isn't finished yeah. and I learned something from him in that way that you know you shouldn't think that you know how it goes because you, you might be surprised by the next thing you do and well you must have you must have got through to him if that if you were the first real collaborator you must have saw something but then you know it. then then equally he would get inside the phrases i'd written and go oh you need to move that note oh there my and God. stretch the music i mean it was really getting within oh, the very fabric of it that's you know? beautiful yeah. and what about what did you learn from alan toussaint i didn't learn but i observed tremendous grace you know, in the face of what I mean, our <clears throat> our collaboration began somewhat bizarrely in the in the early '80s, where I was asked to record a Yoko Ono song, and huh. he ended up producing it. That was our first recording. Then he then he was one of the many people on Spike, a record I made with mm -hmm. T Bone Burnett, where we I describe it in the book as being like Lawrence of Arabia, only with less camels. You know, yeah. it was like everything <laughs> yeah. that I could ever dream right. of, I'd tried to do it all at once, you know, and a, sort of like a heaven's gate of mm -hmm. music. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, But there's many songs I love on, on the record. I mean, it was just, we went very widescreen. Right. And uh, probably one of the last records on that scale that, that any record company would bankroll, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I came back to work with Alan Tucson, it was, in, you know, it was right after Katrina. So oh, yeah. it was very different circumstances. Sure. I just I didn't feel like I had possession of those songs. I just had a really great opportunity to see that he went back to work very fast. And if it, even if it meant me singing lead on that record, we just went and recorded his catalog and a few songs that I'd written, a mm -hmm. few songs that we'd written together. It was a, it was a unique thing to yeah. go back to New Orleans and see in him the, go uh, back into a studio in the, when in the face things of that were barely open. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. one hotel open, right. one studio open. It was curfew at night. Part, you know, you drive through blocks and it would all be blacked out. It was, yeah. you know, you. It was, it was very harrowing to see some yeah, of the scenes. You know, just, just, yeah. just. Uh, you know, and this is all the music that we'd ever loved. You know, sure. was all, and all the music was all joyful as yeah. well. And, and you couldn't well, that's really imagine how that could happen. Sure, you know? that's what music's supposed to do in the face of that tragedy. Yeah. And in uh, the roots, what <laughs> what drove you to uh, that collaboration? Well, I made all these records, you know, and I worked with T-Bone Burnett and uh, again, and you know, in in recent times, and we, when I came to about 2010, I, you could sense it was like a, the the options were narrowing for yeah. making records, sure. and that being the you can make them, but you couldn't delude yourself; it was going to be the thing that made your working life go around like it had been. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the way it was uh, for so many years, and then it changes, but. Hey, before there were recorded records, people played music. Yeah. You know, when, when I started out, it was only 
10 or 15 years after people would buy your songs for $50. Right. Outright, yeah. you know. And then there's a little bit of time where it was a sort of viable business, and then now it's supposed to be free. And so I changed my mind about where the, the I had my responsibility my to my young boys and my wife that I would make use best use of my time, and I decided that would be best on the stage. Yeah, because by this point I got more songs than I could play in one evening. Sure, and I I could sort of tell a story out of those songs. However, I however I did. You had that. a choice. Yeah, yeah, I had one show where sure. I used a big game show. Right, the wheel. Yeah. On. I had another show where I just told a story that and took the component parts of the story from songs from my songbook. I, I didn't imagine I would record again. And, and the next thing I find myself, I'm in, I'm in a little airless box in NBC making Wise Up Ghost with you know, <laughs> Questlove and they kind of tricked me in there, really, you know. But it was it was good because then you have to, you have to again, you have to trust to the people that you're in the room with. Um, the way Quest plays the drums is utterly different to the way Pete Thomas. It's not superior or, in, you know, there's not a sure. competition. It's a different kind of groove. Mm-hmm. And it made me hear the way I place my words against it differently. And it made me think, well, I can sing these outward-looking songs. I don't have to be singing the deepest, darkest right, things about sure. my own feelings. Yeah. I'm looking out at the world. This is a bulletin. This yeah. is a bulletin, what we're seeing yeah. altogether, uh-huh. what we're moving through, that kind of record. I hadn't made consistently one record like that. And, and by the end of it, I, I I sort of ended up writing one of the most personal songs. I wrote a literal, you know, a, a, which one? Account of it's called the puppet as cut as strings. It was like they sent me. You know, the way we worked was like here's some music, okay, and I would write. You know, a, here's a beat, and I would lay the parts down, and then the roots would come in, and they would substitute their their plan for my plan. You mm-hmm. know, I'd lay the bass down, and mm-hmm. then Mark would play it, or the sousaphone would play it, and it was all arranged by in a dub style, really like a dub record, mm-hmm. but. On the very last days of recording, Quest and Ray Angry, who plays piano with them, sent me this beautiful melody, very slow beat, and it didn't feel like really the record we'd made, but it was something else again. And I don't know why, but I sat in my kitchen and wrote this very sad song about my dad's last, you know, my dad had passed like a couple of years before, and I thought, oh, I'll never write about that. It's too, it's too harrowing, mm. you know. And uh, it sort of was a a wonderful thing really because it must have been in there waiting to get out mm-hmm. and I'd never had any reluctance to write about when things were painful sure. or when things you know moved me that I'd seen that got, you know, songs like Shipbuilding or, yeah. uh, I'd never felt any inhibition but this I thought well that's just beyond me to put that into a song uh-huh. before I knew what I'd done I'd, I'd written it and because I'd got a computer with you know a sure. microphone in it, I'd yeah. sung it and then I hit then I found myself oh I'll hit send and send it to them and then I went to the studio the next day and said, that's the record. Oh, my God, that's So beautiful. the recording is just the little mic, the little really? tiny little voice. So maybe if I'd gone into the studio, I would have, I would have been, I would have overthought it. I would have gone, oh, no, I can't do it. No, it's too. I went in the next day. I said, no, we're not touching it. That's it. Oh, wow. You know, because it was, yeah. you could tell that yeah. it was a, um, you know, and it was a very, I, in the end, I, I only mentioned the track because you don't then have to, it doesn't have to then be a hit record. Sure. It's the fact that it came into existence that matters. Yeah. I, when we sequenced the album Wise Up Coast, we talked about opening the record with it. Um, yeah. I said, no, I don't want to hear that every, I don't want to hear about my father's death every time I put that record on. Yeah. I'm not even sure I want to put it on the record. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad we made the track because now it's out of my head, it's out of my heart. Did you feel relief? I did. Oh, I did because I knew sooner or later I'd write about oh, it in yeah. some way. And obviously when I wrote this book, I wrote about things I wasn't proud of and sure. that I'd done publicly and privately and wrote about stupid things that happened to me you know 
in the process of an apprenticeship of learning how to be a, in music. Yeah, you know, being seeing, being blown off in a in a club by Desmond Decker, the reggae star, sure. got up on my break and and lip sync five times to this hit the Israelites. Sure. And I learned from that. You know, you can steal the show even when you're not actually singing. <laughs> you know, and yet when I and when I went into you know uh, making records. I, when I was writing this book out, I realized that the first time I, my voice was heard on the BBC was Live Aid. Yeah. I was just asked to lip sync up until then. Even though we were out every night killing and we could sing all the songs really well, they never trusted you to sing on the BBC because it was just it was sure. too difficult to set the band. Yeah. That was some bullshit excuse. Yeah. So there was always this artificial thing that was part of being in, in pop music and show business, starting with the name, yeah. the silly way I looked. Yeah. But when you get all the way through all this time, I've sung 400 songs I've written, so something like that. Yeah, some of them are, some of them are just songs for occasions. Sure, they're social music. Yeah, like every day I write the book. Yeah, it's a ten minute job to write a song like that. Right. Some of them are like very harrowing to listen to, whether they be about carnal stuff or heartbreak. Yeah, and some of them are life and death. You know, some of them, whether it's shipbuilding or whether it's this puppet song. <clears throat> they're about somebody's end yeah and you can't shy away from those things because no. that that's what it's given you to write about these things yeah. you know yeah and i've been fortunate it's just that that's what i've well it's a beautiful job and you're uh you know you're a, a, a it is a beautiful, it is a beautiful, actually a beautiful job. job and, and the fact that you sort of embrace and accept the responsibility of of being a a, a, a troubadour you know, and being out there and, and delivering, you know, all of your work at, at whatever pace or however you want to do it for people is a, is a beautiful yeah. thing. And, and you know, the recordings, recordings, of, you know, are something sure. that some people really, and of course, I, you know, I wouldn't be here without, without my, but if your parents meet across a record shop counter, yeah. records are going to be important objects to you. Sure. We can't pretend that they motivate the, the business of playing music live the yeah. same way as they did. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't exist or we right. shouldn't create them sure. just for them to be as literally a record. That's where the word came from. Word, the root, root. And also the, the, the joy the account, of the account, you know. Look, for me to be able to sit with, and I'm into vinyl again, for me to be able to sit yeah. and listen to, you know, Imperial Bedroom yesterday. Yeah. It's uh, it's beautiful, and I can do that any time. You're not going to come play it for me in my house. No, no, I might go and play it in your local theater. You know, but if you go, if you go, you know, and and that's probably why I love, you know, seven, seven, seventy-eight it. records. Sure, you know, because they're even a closer step back into the past. Oh, it's you know, time travel. They're playing into a horn. Yeah, and if you just think it in your head, they were just in that room, and there's no mixing or anything. Yeah. They had to make those choices. Yeah, and Little Richard records are the same. They're, yeah. If you play a Little Richard record off a of 78 to a bunch of kids, they'll go crazy. Yeah. And it's really like, this is music we had better band. All right, we got to go. You got to go do a gig. I got to go do a gig. It's nice to speak with you. It was great. So that was that was information power pack conversation with the, uh, the amazing Elvis Costello. I hope you enjoyed that. And you can also go over to WTFPod.com, see what's up. Get a poster, get on the mailing list. Not much on my schedule because I'm working. I'm trying to keep my shit together. I'm all right. Incoming.
Boomer lives!